I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Because of the UK's role in the UN Security Council, you know, there are settings where we can be a sort of proxy for the United States. And that partly means that a lot of other allies are also would be looking to us to sort of step in and step up um, in the event that um, the US became a less predictable partner. Democracy still has a legitimacy that very few people are, are willing to jettison. You know, the Chinese are probably the only large power who will say, no, it's not for us. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, head of the National Security College at the Australian National University in Canberra. And today's podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay respects to their elders, past and present. So in this episode of the National Security Podcast, I'm really delighted to be joined by two very distinguished uh, and very knowledgeable international guests. We'll be speaking about the global disruptions of 2024, but particularly the uh, the promise and the perils, really, of the uh, the polls, the uh, the elections in a number of democracies over the world uh, this year. I think the year in which more people will vote for their leaders uh, in one year than at any other time in human history. Although I'm happy to have that little piece of data checked by our our, our expert visitors. My guests uh, will be well known to many listeners of the National Security Podcast, uh, Gideon Rackman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. Welcome, Gideon. Thank you. And also Sophia Gaston, who's Head of Foreign Policy at the Policy Exchange Think Tank in London, also an expert associate of the National Security College and someone who plays particular attention, uh, who pays particular attention to uh, Australia and the Australia-UK relationship. Welcome, Sophia. Thanks, Rory. So Sophia and Gideon are both here in Canberra visiting the National Security College and sharing their wealth of expertise and insight with policymakers uh, and our scholarly community. Uh, And so it was a perfect opportunity to bring you into the studio and really pick your brains on what's happening in the world, but particularly as we say, the the perils, the promise, uh, the potential of this extraordinary democratic moment in this time of great disruption and risk in the geopolitical environment. There are plenty of countries we could begin the conversation with that have either gone to the polls or are going to the polls, uh, and of course, uh, uh, among other places where democratic elections have been held that are quite momentous lately has been Taiwan, Indonesia, uh, the list could go on. But I might go to you first, Gideon, because your work looks not only at democracy, but of course also at uh, authoritarianism. What's your take on the world in 2024? Well, I think that, as you say, uh, 
at least on the surface, this looks like uh, almost a celebration year for democracy. Um, huge numbers of people voting, uh, the, the world's most populous democracies, India, Indonesia, the United States, all having elections. Um, uh, but I think beneath the surface, the picture's a bit less comforting because even as you have these elections, I think you can make a case that there's a big danger of democratic erosion uh, that the winners of these elections are the kinds of people who may ensure that the next election, while it might take place, might be less free and fair, or even if electoral democracy survives, some of the other aspects uh, of a kind of free society, whether it's independent courts, independent media, uh, get eroded. Um, and this is a phenomenon that's uh, associated with the strongman leadership that I've, I've written about in the past but to give you a bit more detail let's let's take a few of these particularly Indo Indonesia India Mexico and I'm sure we'll talk about the US in more detail later um Indonesia we just had an election Prabowo won a very clear victory I think uh, people were surprised by the margin um and I think it's also true that although um you know none of the candidates were perfect they all had issues um uh, that he was the candidate who who, who liberals uh, with a small L, people who were interested in the preservation of democracy, were most concerned about for a number of reasons. The first being that he has a record of having been accused of uh, involvement in mass atrocities while being uh, a leader of the special forces in the Indonesian army, working in East Timor, etc., and then subsequently was accused of being involved in the kidnapping of uh, democracy activists, some of whom died or disappeared. Those accusations were taken sufficiently seriously for him to be banned from the United States for a while. I think in the pattern uh, that we've seen with Narendra Modi, that bygones become bygones pretty quickly when you become the head of a state, and, and that won't be an issue in terms of visiting or working with Western countries. But they are an issue in the backs of people's minds. And I think even, uh, you know, now Proboa didn't run actually as a strongman figure. Uh, he ran as a sort of cuddly grandpa, you know, with TikTok videos of him dancing and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's not the whole story though, is it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because people noted that, uh, for example, he, unlike the two other candidates, skipped an event on freedom of the press he did not answer questionnaires from human rights associations, unlike the other candidates. There are people who think that he is an admirer of Putin and in his ideal world would uh, run the country a bit more in that style. So that's, you know, I don't want to convict the guy before anything's happened. Maybe he'll be a, a good leader. Um, but there are those concerns. You've got to remember that Indonesia's transition to democracy is relatively recent. You know, Suharto fell in the late 90s. Uh, and indeed, Prabowo was married to Suharto's daughter. Um, so that's one. Then India, I think, which comes up very soon. Again, it's this slightly contradictory picture, or um, it, it's not cut and dried. It, it, there's no doubt that Modi is extremely popular, that he will win this election. Uh, I think unless something astonishing happens, he's going to win very easily. And that reflects genuine popularity. Um at the same time, I think there has been a process of democratic erosion in India. Uh, you talk to journalists, obviously, as a fellow journalist, they're kind of my first port of call. They found the environment much more intimidating recently. Um, people I know who've worked in universities have lost their jobs for being too uh, 
too critical of the BJP. Um, there are uh, other concerns about, uh, obviously, about the attitude to Muslims, etc. So, so Modi's reputation, I mean, he's certainly no liberal, you know, um, he is, he is a classic strongman leader, he's built up a personality cult, uh, you know, from calling the main cricket stadium in India, the Narendra Modi Stadium, while he's, while he's still in office. Um, and I think one of the concerns is that if he wins this elect smashing victory, as people expect, I think one of the patterns I saw when I wrote Age of the Strongman is that leaders who start, who are elected, who start in a relatively moderate fashion, the longer they're in power, mm. but can, can become more extreme, more authoritarian, um, and that's certainly been the pattern, say, with Erdogan, with Putin, and there must be a concern that that might be the case in India. Then just briefly, Mexico, obviously, it's uh, not one that gets that much attention out in this part of the world, or indeed, you know, e even in the US, actually, mm. even though it's across the border. But um, they have a huge democracy. Actually. They have a huge democracy, yeah. But, and um, AMLO is, again, he's a sort of Modi-style figure, and he's very popular, no doubt mm. about it. But he's also... Um, he holds a ranting three-hour press conference every day in which he calls out his enemies and uh, and so on. He is stepping down in line with the Constitution, but he has a hand-picked successor, um, a woman called Claudia Scheinbaum, who was likely to win. And there were big demos in Mexico City just recently because people are worried about the way that AMLO has gutted the National Election Commission, which is really, really important for um, ensuring that elections are free and fair in, in Mexico and there's a worry that he, at the back of his mind, is, is trying to move Mexico back to something the way it was for most of its history, effectively a one-party state where the same party wins elections again and again because it, it kind of controls things at a local level. So Mexico, too, is, is uh, a concern. South Africa, finally... Uh, is also having an election soon. That's and that doesn't get attention here. I have to say no, and that's going to be a very, very interesting one because it looks like the ANC, which have ruled that country since the end of uh, apartheid, will lose its uh, majority. It's always had over fifty percent of the vote. The country is 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 in a bad way. You know, uh, they uh, they have massive power cuts. There's infrastructures falling apart. There's a lot of crime. Um, so the ANC are losing popularity. Uh, but they, they will probably still get them, you know, be the largest single party. They'll have to go into coalition. And that could be a moment of either hope or a further kind of downgrade in, in the country's prospects. It, hopefully, if uh, one of the more liberal and better run parties goes into coalition with the ANC, they might shake them up a bit. It's a very corrupt party mm. these days. Uh, but on the other hand, if they go into, part, into alliance with uh, the economic freedom fighters who are you know, even more populist and uh, anti-capitalist, things could go even, go even worse for South Africa. So to summarize, you've got these like four countries that are G20 members, all of them democracies and counted in the democracy column, uh, but all of whom I think there's a danger of them moving in a slightly more authoritarian direction post-election. Um, or, as in South Africa's case, just becoming much less functional. And you haven't touched yet on the, uh, I guess, the well, the elephant in the room as, as far as uh, so much of the world is concerned, and, and that is obviously the, the question of the United States, sure. uh, but also the United Kingdom. So I might go to you, Sophia, and, and hear your views on, on, on the US and particularly the UK. 
Well, thank you, Rory. I mean, the UK elections, the, in terms of the political landscape, we've got the Labour Party um, have been in the op- opposition benches for 14 years now, and it will be nearly 15 years by the time they would be coming into government if they do win the election. They have been on track um, to to take power. They've been pretty substantively ahead for quite some time now, consistently in the polls. The Conservative Party, um, you know, one of the extraordinary things about this Conservative term, they've had, you know, 14 years, as I say, but they've had so many different leaders in that time. And one of the things that each leader has managed to do is every time they come in, sort of say, no, this feels different. They've positioned themselves Mm. as a change candidate from their own predecessors in the party. So um, it sort of at once feels as though the Conservatives have been in power forever, but also there is this feeling of kind of lingering instability and that we've had a lot of upheaval and people are pretty exhausted. Now, there's not a huge amount of direct um, enthusiasm for the Labour leader and, and the Labour Party in their sort of manifesto. It's it's not a kind of Blair 97 moment where you had this extremely charismatic person who sort of captured hearts and minds. Um, it's more a sort of feeling that the government, you know, maybe is sort of running out of steam and um, I think a very important aspect of this is that the Conservative Party has really fallen apart in terms of discipline. And a lot of this really tracks back to the Brexit years, the really fever pitch moments of those parliamentary debates where sort of um, collective responsibility and cabinet responsibility sort of all broke down. Um, and so they've become rather undisciplined and the British people are watching that in in you know on television every day. Um, the Conservative Party is also being cannibalised by by two other parties. The Liberal Democrats, which is, you know, um, has at times been a coalition partner, the sort of Huge, the, the moderates, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're sort of basically pretty socially liberal, economically liberal. Um, they're usually quite localised. They do very well in, in local by-elections. Um, they are going to be challenging the Conservatives in the sort of moderate heartlands of the south of England. Um, and then you have another party, which is Reform, which sort of essentially grew out of what used to be UKIP and Nigel Farage um, in a kind of post-Brexit posture uh, is now kind of really mainly just focused on um, immigration and sort of some culture war issues. So the the conservatives are being cannibalized by the left and the right. Uh, it's been quite difficult for um, the prime minister to sort of keep all those factions at bay. And it has created a slightly sort of schizophrenic feeling to some of the messages that are coming out. He's being pulled in all directions. So there are a lot of people in, in Westminster who are keen to ensure that the Tories fight the, the election from the centre ground. Around, um, and and would probably argue that that's really the, their only chance um, to to retain power. But um, all of this makes for a very dynamic uh, landscape coming into the election. Now, I think in terms of the mood music, um, this is an election that is being fought uh, with a very strong feeling of escalating geopolitical threats and a destabilizing global security environment plus a kind of um, raft of social issues and tensions domestically at home. And then you, you, you're you having to deal with those as a government in a time of really 
profoundly constrained resources. So this is not going to be a good times election. Um, and, and these sorts of issues outside in particular are having a really, really big effect on the issues that, that the election will be um, fought on the battleground there. So things like immigration, energy, um, you know, and and the other big factor, of course, is that our election um, it is likely to be held in the autumn. So either in the kind of twilight of or proceeding or just, you know, afterwards around the same time as the US election. And that's going to have a really, really big effect on the, the discourse and the feel and the sense of urgency around our result. One thing that's very interesting, again, just to stay on this foreign policy point, people love to say, you know, no one ever goes in the voting booth and th is thinking about foreign policy. But um, I find it difficult to see how foreign policy is not a really significant part of this election. And what's really unusual is that um, for the Sunak government, the current government that's in power now, their domestic record has been pretty tough. They have not really got many runs on the board. Um, it's sort of, you know, they created these five tests and some of them have been impossible to meet and um, others, you know, have been sort of out of their control. So, but, but the foreign policy ledger has actually been very strong. So, um, it, it, you know, again, there's all sorts of ways in which foreign policy is going to be looming large. Just to touch on this U.S. elections point, um, it's difficult to overstate how, um, strongly the focus in Whitehall at the moment is on the US elections. And, you know, I think both sides of politics are really, um, are really dug in on this. And there's a lot of scenario planning work going on in government. So this is scenario planning in the UK, in the UK. about the potential outcome of the US election. Exactly. And, you know, we, we should take a step back and realise how kind of extraordinary that is because the United States is our absolutely indispensable, vital security ally in the United Kingdom. So to be having to think about the outcome of their domestic um, ele presidential election um, in those terms, really, you know, we are in sort of uncharted terrain here. Um, but I think that the implications of the US election are particularly large for the UK because um, we are so deeply integrated and, you know, we we are in still in a process of having to deal with all the shockwaves of the kind of economic decoupling from our largest trading partner with the, the EU. And I think the question of whether or not we would have to, you know, or be forced to decouple in any kind of security or strategic terms from the United States is just a pretty overwhelming thought. Um but, you know, because of the UK's role in, in the UN Security Council, uh, uh, role as the sort of pen holder in a lot of multilateral forums in, in diplomatic terms, um, you know, there are settings where we can be a sort of proxy for the United States. And that partly means that a lot of other allies are also would be looking to us to sort of step in and step up um, in the event that um, the US became a less predictable partner. So I think, you know, it's this is going to be a really extraordinary election in the UK, not necessarily because of the personalities between the two men who 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 are going to put their names on the, you know, in the in the ballot box. They um, you know, in many ways we are fortunate compared to a lot of our allies that the we will have two moderates, um, two two pretty sensible party leaders uh, going head to head. But because international events 
are creating such a profound sense of insecurity in the electorate. And because of this coordination of the timing with the United States election, um, it's hard to think of another time in in recent history where where you know foreign policy will have loomed so large. So the the prospect of uh, a UK Labor government and potentially a Trump administration in the United States that really is um, uncharted territory. How how that's navigated uh, in terms of interests and indeed values, ideology, uh, the whole lot. Um, Gideon, what's your take not only on that US-UK dimension, but let's go, uh, sadly, <laughs> depressingly perhaps, to the possibilities in the United States uh, on, on the US dimension itself? So, look, I think um, I don't have any special insights into how the, the election's going to go. All I can say is if you look at the opinion polls or indeed the bookmakers' odds, Trump is the favourite at the moment. Uh, he's regularly uh, three or four points ahead of Biden. And uh, given the bias in the US Electoral College, actually a Democrat has to be sort of fairly ahead of a Republican yeah. to win. Um, so it's not looking good for Biden. Uh, that said, we're a few months out yet. Um, and Trump's trials are a, a big wild card. He's just been, you know, close to bankrupted by a, a New York court. I don't know what effect that'll have on his mental stability. Not that there was there was that much in evidence to begin with. But, um, you know, and will Jack Smith, uh, the guy who's going after him in Washington, manage to get the case off the ground? Depends a bit on the Supreme Court. But so those are real wild cards. On the slightly more kind of predictable end of things, the American economy is actually pretty strong, and uh, it's possible consumer sentiment may improve. Will people give Biden some of the credit for that? Um, I think also the Democrats are beginning to find a strategy around the sense that the Republicans' use of major political issues for political ends, I'm thinking particularly of Ukraine and the, and the southern border, is becoming quite evident the fact that they will not pass this package for Ukraine, even though polls show a majority of Americans do want it to go through, uh, the fact that they did not agree border legislation. Now, of course, the Republicans will have talking points as to why it was inadequate and they couldn't agree it. But I think Biden is going to try and run on those issues, that this is a, a kind of do-nothing wrecker Congress and wrecker party, which I think actually is a fair enough as a critique. Even so, I'd say, you know, maybe it's just my inner pessimist, but I think it's quite likely that Trump will win. And um, then really all bets are off because there are some optimists who say, well, we we had four years of Trump. We kind of know what it's like, a bit, you know, crazy and disruptive, but actually good in some ways. And uh, But I think Trump too will be very different from Trump one. Uh, he personally has been radicalized by the experience of January the 6th, all the trials. He's much more into sort of, I mean, he was always a bit into conspiracy theories. I mean, he's, he started with a conspiracy theory that Obama had not been born in the United States, but he's gone further down that sort of rabbit hole, uh, taking a lot of his followers with him. And um, I think he has said, I will be your revenge. So if he comes in on a revenge mission, starts trying to do things like put Mark Middy, the former head of the Joint Chiefs, on trial, which is something he's threatened to do. He's really taking on, as he would see it, the deep state, I would just say the state. Mm. Um, and if he takes on the U.S. military, which is something people in the Pentagon are worried about, uh, that he's going to try and take out not just Milley, but a lot of the top brass who you don't, and replace them with people who are loyal. 
so that he can then uh, use you know, the I, army. I see the uh, the air quotes there, loyal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Loyal to him, exactly. Mm. Sorry, you can't see air quotes in the mm. podcast, can you? Uh, yeah, so so that he's he's after having loyalists in place and not less, not as he would put it, the best. Um, uh, you know, they would be um, people who'll do what he'll say, what he says won't. You know, even some of the real loyalists in the past, people like Bill Barr, the Attorney General, Pence as Vice President, mm. they had a line they wouldn't cross to their credit. Uh, but maybe he'll find some guys who don't have those lines. So this is all occurring in a world of, uh, you know, to put it politely, great uncertainty, but it's really worse than that. It's about disorder. It's about the intersection of zones of conflict, um, outright war uh, in Ukraine, uh, warfare of various kinds in the Middle East as well, the increasingly uh, worrying risk of coercion leading to conflict or confrontational conflict in the Indo-Pacific, and liberal democracies have, especially middle powers, I think, have a great incentive to try to band together as much as possible to manage these risks. I wonder if either of you could comment on how you see the the potential interplays of the outcomes of these results. I know this is a bit of a uh, a probability maze of how different election results will intersect with one another, but what what are the patterns and what does that mean for the way that um, countries like Australia or Britain need to get ready? Um, I don't mind who's ready yeah. to answer that, but maybe, Sophia, if you've got a, an answer, that would be great. I think one of the, um, the developments that had started to dawn on us after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, you know, is is the fact that there's this sort of authoritarian bearing witness to and learning from the behaviour of other powers in, in these sorts of scenarios. You know, I think we certainly were aware that uh, President Putin was watching the Allied withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, you know, I think there was a sense that he was sort of emboldened by that, a, a sense that the West was sort of had been proven to be ineffectual in in, the, in that and had lost some of its power and prestige. Um, you know, certainly President Xi has been watching uh, the Allied defense of Ukraine and and Russia's sort of. Uh, strengths and weaknesses in that, um, you know. So, so I think there's this bearing witness, and then there's also the question about the interrelationships of the supply of support and sustainment between different authoritarian leaders and states um, with these different multiple spheres of conflict. So, you know, there's Iran sending drones to uh, support Russia's. Um, offensive in Ukraine, uh, obviously Iran's relationship with Hamas, funding and supporting Hamas in their um, October 7th attack on Israel and and the ongoing conflict now in Gaza. You have, you know, uh, President Xi offering quite significant economic support to Russia. Um, so, so these interrelationships between these otherwise disparate spheres of conflict be, through these actors um, is an extremely worrying trend. But the bearing witness point is important because that's an opportunity for the West. It's an opportunity and a responsibility. It's why, you know, for anyone that cares about stability and security in the, in the Indo-Pacific region, the outcome of what happens in Ukraine and the way in which Russia is held to account for its aggression, its territorial aggression and its complete lack of respect for sovereignty um, is so important because 
you know, President Xi is watching very closely and making interpretations and conclusions about that in the context of Taiwan and his other sort of um, regional intentions. So um, I think all of this is terrifying <laughs> on one level, no doubt. Um, but we do need to be really aware of those interconnected relationships and the opportunities and requirements that stem from that for us to make sure that we are really consistent and strong in the way that we send messages about the international order and that needing to be upheld, not just in our own immediate region, but also um, in other parts of the world. And I think actually Japan has been really extraordinary at this. We've just seen um, the announcement of further big funding settlement to Ukraine. They've been doing so much work um, directing resources uh, towards the defense of Ukraine, often with very little soft power benefit, you mm. know, relatively under the radar. But they're doing that because they understand the indivisibility of these two security theaters and that even though Ukraine is not in their neighborhood as it is for us in the UK, um, that if they're not supporting that, then it's more difficult to make the case for European to European powers for why they need to care about the stability of the Indo-Pacific region. Gideon. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, these this question of these sort of interconnected crises is is a very important one. So there's a, a sort of debate going on, um, you know, here in Canberra, I think, but also in Washington and, and in London about um, how much... Uh, is what's happening in Europe associated with what's happening in Asia? And if you're sitting in in, in the US, there's a school of thought, some uh, people who I think would quite like to work with Trump, uh, who say, well, you know, you just leave, um, leave Europe to cope on its own, that America should either retreat into uh, a new form of isolationism or should concentrate on the challenge of China because they don't have the resources to police the mm. whole world. And that's that's the key. And then there's a counter school of thought that says, no, you've got, you know, if you if you see the terrain in Ukraine, uh, as Sophia was saying, she's watching that, and uh, you you um, you actually make trouble in Asia more likely. Um, and I think that's the dominant school of thought, certainly among the Democrats. I don't know which way Trump will keep saying this. I don't know which way Trump will jump on that kind of thing if he comes to power. But I think that the the the, the U.S. does raise uh, a valid point about resources. You know that um, it is a bit of a shell game that America um, understands as a credibility issue that if it, if it loses in one area, withdraws in one area, that the Afghanistan effect does that encourage people say people to say, well, America's looking weak, the West is looking weak. On the other hand, if it's challenged in all of the areas simultaneously. It's, it doesn't have the resources, you know, so that you can see a practical work example of that, uh, where some of the ammunition that was going to go to Ukraine was pre-positioned in Israel, and actually then it couldn't go because it was given mm. to the Israelis. Um, and those, so multiple crises uh, may, you know, reveal uh, the kind of how, how, how thinly we're stretched. Yeah, and there is, I guess, uh, there is a question of preparedness there. I think the, you know, the idea of uh, liberal democracies being prepared for effectively a strategic breakdown, yeah. uh, being prepared in everything from defence capability through sort of munitions stockpiles, due to through to 
uh, economic resilience through to you know, popular awareness of risk. Uh, I think for many of us, there's still a very long way to go, and there's even a question as to whether populations could really bear that. Well, one really interesting aspect to this is obviously we're having to have quite live conversations in 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 Europe about um, whether or not the United States will um, continue to fund the defense of Ukraine. And, you know, this isn't an abstract question anymore where, you know, it's here, it's now, it's it's landed amongst us. I still think we are so far from where we need to be in terms of actually shifting gears towards the kind of wartime economies that are going to be required to actually deliver on that. I think there's but, a fear that it's already too late, to yeah. be honest. I mean, I remember talking to somebody who spends quite a lot of time on the Ukrainian battlefront, and he said, you know, it's a bit like that old saying about people going bankrupt slowly and then very fast, that with Ukraine, uh, as he put it, by the time we've realized that pro- there's a real problem, it'll be too late. But the really interesting thing is that we could probably all, I mean, with extraordinary domestic sacrifices, cobble together the funds to be able to fill that gap more quickly than we would be able to fill the gap in industrial production. You know, we have spent uh, the past decade talking about the modernization of of war fighting. We've moved to slim down um, armies, you know, fewer troops. We've been investing in tech, which obviously the tech side of this is is kind of non-negotiable. It's been really important. But Ukraine has shown us just how important those kind of nuts and bolts of of basic munitions uh, have been. And I think that I saw a projection the other day that it could take us up to 2025 to be able to kind of actually uplift our capabilities. But is that too late? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think somebody said to me that at the beginning of the war, uh, Britain was manufacturing as many artillery shells in a year as Ukraine was using in a day, which gives you, and right now another stat, you know, Russia, for all us saying, oh, you know, they're nothing, there's an economy the size of Italy, they're producing twice as many artillery shells as the US and Europe combined. As an aside, it's, it is fascinating to see the Korean Peninsula, North Korea and South Korea, each in their own way, however indirectly, um, effectively supplying the two sides of the conflict in, in Europe. It's not a story you could have imagined in the 1950s. Absolutely. And the South, yeah, South Koreans have been quite important. But I mean, just on the side of, you know, even before the question of whether uh, the US would supply Ukraine came up in this very acute form, we have it now, they you could see the, the running short of artillery shells in the decision to give them cluster munitions over the summer. It was simply because it was all they kind of had left in the inventory. We'll be right back. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In a volatile world... Australia's strategic problem demands difficult decisions, licensed by an inclusive conversation. The ANU National Security College is proud to present Securing Our Future, a conference like no other, informing a distinctly Australian, people-centred vision of national security. 
Bringing together diverse Australian and international voices, we are bridging disciplines, professions and viewpoints. Join us in Canberra on the 9th and 10th of April this year to engage with thought leaders and decision makers from government, academia and industry. For more details and to secure your ticket, visit the link in the show notes. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. And this, look, this goes to the question, obviously, of, of whether or not we're working in a connected international theatre of strategic confrontation and struggle, whether that's really got a democracy versus authoritarianism character or whether there's, you know, there, are, there are other layers that are just as important as that. It does bring us to what uh, I guess I'm, quite a few of our listeners would be interested in, which is the, the choices that Australia has to make in, in these circumstances or what we can do to really be as prepared for these troubling futures, these troubling um, prospective futures as we as, as we can be. Um, I think one interesting observation to share is, is the question of whether, in fact, the best thing that Europe can do for, and indeed Britain can do for stability in the Indo-Pacific is, is, is to do everything it can to hold the line in Europe as opposed to being more active in the Indo-Pacific, or can we do both? Um, I'd be interested in that question. I'd also be interested um, in a maybe slightly more parochial way about, let's say, the Australia-UK relationship, because you've got the prospect of a Labor government in the United Kingdom, you've got a Labor government in Australia that actually has has affirmed over the past two years that it can be a, a Labor government, a, a social democratic government, a you know, somewhat progressive government, and yet reasonably strong in the national security settings of pushing back against Chinese influence uh, and Chinese coercion, not as um, openly or forthrightly maybe as previous conservative governments, but nonetheless continuing all those hard national security settings. And so there's maybe a lesson there uh, in engaging with the UK. So I'd be keen to sort of Australianise the conversation a little um, to the extent that our uh, our international visitors feel uh, is important on the global stage. Um, Sophia? I think there is one um, interesting scenario that um, could transpire uh, depending on myriad factors, but um, in the event of a Chinese invasion, a sort of kinetic warfare invasion of of Taiwan, um, that the United States could actually be asking the United Kingdom to stay in the Euro-Atlantic region and, and defend the region. Because I think now we are in this mindset of the sort of linked security theatres and the sort of risk of further escalation and deterioration in, in, in other parts of the world simultaneously. So that's a kind of interesting framing thought. And, but, but I think it also um, sort of skims over the fact that when we're talking about deterrence these days, you know, we're not just talking about hard power. It's not just about Britain sending frigates down into the um, Indo-Pacific. There are a lot of other instruments that are really important because really what we're trying to do is make the cost of attack, invasion, destabilization too high to bear for the aggressors. Um, and the UK actually has a lot of instruments to play. Um, you know, obviously our, our joining of CPTPP has has moved us into the second largest economy in that behind Japan. There will be really, we that means we've got a seat at the table for some of the really important questions on trade and economic statecraft that will be decided in the region. Um, but, but I think what's really important is that 
Um, as I referenced earlier with Japan, you know, I think Australia needs to be thinking about um, the enormous constraints that countries like the UK are under dealing with truly global responsibilities um, at the highest level and these different spheres of conflict sort of coming up and pulling at our very constrained resources and thinking about what really targeted um, uh demonstration sort of in both material and symbolic terms can be made by Australia into the the Euro-Atlantic region, you know, supporting the defense of Ukraine, you know, thinking about the Red Sea in the Middle East and stabilization there. So um, I think that's really, really vital. I would say that um, the change of government um, that is anticipated in the UK, I uh, the Labour Party have said that they will practice continuity on national security and defence. In, and I wouldn't see any kind of rolling back of what we've already done in the Indo-Pacific. I, th I think that is here to stay. But I do think there is a question as to whether the Labour Party will reinforce the designation that has been given to the Indo-Pacific as our second yeah primary security theatre after the Atlantic, after the Euro-Atlantic Euro yeah. as our home region. And so that's to play for. So, you know, the, there is a question and, and there is a conversation that needs to be had about whether Labour will be as ambitious on that or whether they will want to, with these constrained resources, direct to some other areas that they feel are important to them, multilaterals, you know, uh, Africa, uh, other parts of yeah, the world. Uh, or indeed there's a major conflict in the Middle East where British forces are, are have been you know, participating with the US and uh, the attacks on the Houthis, for example. So dialogue between the sort of Labour Party establishments of the two countries sounds like it would be pretty beneficial to shared security interests. Extremely important because the relationships between the Conservative government in the UK and the Conservatives um, here in Australia have um, been extremely strong and we still on a daily basis have a lot of um, Australian Conservative ex-politicians and Prime Ministers coming through London. It's quite extraordinary actually. Um, but we have far fewer from the other side of politics coming through um, with the exception of, you know, officials. So, or, or the High Commissioner who is a former and, Labor Minister. And the High Smith. Commissioner yeah, who's, yeah. who's doing a brilliant job. But we just need to increase that visibility visibility and make this more of a kind of bipartisan relationship and really divorce it from that, um, I suppose, kind of psychological association with the Brexit moment. I mean, I think that obviously there's the question of resources. You yeah. know, um, the British military is is much diminished, even from not just, you know, imperial era, but even at the time of the Falklands War. I mean, I think we have a much smaller navy. I think I just read that... Uh, the Australian Navy, based on the announcements yesterday, will will actually soon have more ships than if the we, UK if Navy. We, if we spend the money and get if, there if over the next the 10 to 20 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the British Army is down to 70,000 men. Uh, so you could get them all into Wembley Stadium and there'd be 26,000 empty seats. It's not super impressive. And that's partly a recruitment issue as well. We're finding it very, very difficult to, to get people into the Navy, into the Army, um, as well as equipment and so on. And I remember... You know, one on one of my earlier visits to Australia, being at a dinner, sort of Anglo-Australian uh, dinner, and an Australian military guy, fortunately, perhaps I can't remember his name, but he he struck a discordant note because a lot of it was rah, 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 we're going to work mm. together, Indo-Pacific. And this guy stood up, and this was pre uh, the major Ukraine war, and said, look, 
you face a major challenge in your own region. Uh, you don't have the resources to send half your navy to the Indo-Pacific. You know, maybe you should just concentrate on deterring Russia. Uh, and that was not the view of the room in general, but I thought it was, it's always good to have somebody throw a glass of cold water at you just to make you think. And I think that that is a question we're going to face. If we have a major security contingency in Europe, which we may well do, if you have the combination of Russia mm. advancing, Trump elected, NATO in disarray, how much uh, will be really be able to direct it out here? But if that's too much of a downer, I think that some of the role that the UK plays here and that Australia plays in Europe is symbolic. It's sort of showing up. You know, so that it was important for NATO that Australia, South Korea, and Japan came to summits because it made this point about this is a global community. It's not just the US leading Europe by the nose. Um, and equally, I think some British presence here, whether it's in a naval exercise or it's a foreign minister's visit or whatever, shows that, yeah, we are thinking globally, uh, that we are still a member of the P5 and that there is a community that stretches uh, from the US to Australia to the UK and a bunch of the European unions, like-minded democracies, in case it's all sounding a bit sort of, you know, like a white man's club, but also in Japan, in South Korea, uh, who who work together. And that's important. And as a sort of unashamed Indo-Pacificist, I also recognise that we need to build coalitions of as much like-mindedness as we can globally at this time. I can't end the conversation without going to AUKUS, um, and I think these, um, you know, uh, possibilities for the Australia-UK relationship, for our relationships with the United States, that obviously raises questions about how do we sustain, um, you know, the extraordinary um, challenge uh, and, and all the potential benefits of AUKUS that the three governments have said. Um, Sophia, what's your sense? We need to be devoting really significant resources to public diplomacy and stratcoms around AUKUS for the next nine months. We need to be on the Hill in Washington getting, you know, GOP uh, senators, representatives around the table. We need to be investing in understanding who could theoretically be coming into a Trump administration. We need to do all of that work and making sure that we can actually build some serious political resilience around this project. Um, so that's going to be vital. We also need to make sure that we've got as many runs on the board in terms of the project actually coming into fruition. We need, yeah. we need some serious pillar two progress to be made this year. It has to be the priority because the deterrence function only works when, we, when we're actualizing the project. And so just to interrupt, just to remind Liz, is pillar two being the sort of critical technologies, not, not the submarine side yes, of the Yes, the advanced the, yeah. technology accelerator. These are really important, not just for military use, but they will also have civilian commercial applications, vital for economic growth. So we need to get that happening. Um, we also, though, need to really understand and be frank about the fact that there will, while the US is such an important component of AUKUS and it, it would be extremely painful and distressing to have to co contemplate the idea of of that not um, them not being, you know, a part of a trilateral partnership, that the reality is that the political instability in the US means we have to really, really invest ensuring up that bilateral core. You're saying it could between, become AUK. 
Well, <laughs> awkward. I'm not going to go that far. I, but, I, but. I, I don't think that's a. It's not a short-term prospect that we're we're wanting to look at seriously. And I think you know we we have many reasons to still be confident that we can make that case to to build that political resilience. But I think the UK and Australian core of AUKUS is a really good place to make sure that we're shoring up. We need to modernise that relationship. And I think this is where AUKUS is such an opportunity for us to take this relationship away from colonial past, Anglosphere narratives, et cetera, into something that is really, you know, forward-looking. It's about technology. It's about security. It's about strategic relationship um, and, you know, values like-mindedness on top of that. I I guess I'd turn it around a little bit in that that, um, I think strengthening all of the bilateral pillars and I don't mean pillars in the um, the capability sense, but all the bi- bilateral prongs prongs within the AUKUS, um, uh, you know, the, the AUKUS trident. That's too much of a mixed metaphor, but you know, ensuring that the the US Australia relationship, the US UK, the Australia US, we need we need strength in all of these, and even if there is therefore temporary weakness in one, we'll get the trilateral project through. I think that's that's probably the sense that I'm um, that I'm that I'm hearing, uh, and I guess it sounds like the um, Public diplomacy, but also the the very sort of cold uh, forensic sort of lobbying and, and information sensing effort in Washington is something that both London and Canberra need to be working. We, we on. have to make it really, really easy for the Americans to understand a direct national interest as well as a higher interest in the AUKUS project. Gideon, what do you think? Well, I, th- I think that you know, to be frank, AUKUS is vulnerable. Um, it's a very long term project in a very turbulent world where a lot can change. Um, And I think that the strategic analysis behind it holds up, uh, which is that we need to work together to try to restore kind of the balance of power within within the region. Uh, But there are the political technological side is is difficult. Uh, There are questions about the durability of the support for it, particularly in the United States, because as we were saying earlier, it's just such an unpredictable thing. And there are people in the US who are reluctant, not so much as a political question, but almost as a sort of um, tech sharing question uh, to share tech. Um, or, or to share the, the capability, for example, uh, you know, the argument that there are only so many subs, yeah, subs in the US system, so, can they spare a few? Um, absolutely. Yeah, and then the whole question about, uh, we were just discussing earlier, do Australians really have the faith in the UK industrial base to build the the, the final stage? The shared, yeah, SSN, yeah, SSN AUKUS. Yeah. Um, will, will, will we be able to do that? And we all know that this is such a long timeline already, and we all know that defence projects are subject to delay and cost overrun. So I've had Australians outside the world of, you know, this world you live in of the kind of security experts say to me, we're never really going to see these subs, are we? And you somehow got to show that actually this can be delivered. So, look, there's so many more things we could cover, but we have a conversation that really began with democracy, has ended with capability, uh, and AUKUS, in the case of uh, Australia, the UK, and the US, are seeking to prosecute uh, submarine and critical technology capability. Um, I think it's this level of critical scrutiny is absolutely important to ensure that the, the governments uh, at a political level and also uh, in, in the agencies and the armed forces continue every day um, to do that that hard work that they're doing 
of uh, of demonstrating that this can work and of building the capabilities for our our national interests and values in this contested world we've described. I do want to conclude on a slightly, maybe not optimistic note, but uh, uh, I think accentuating the positive note. And that's just to, to point out that um, if if we look at the democratic elections this year, three and a half billion people going to the polls, um, choosing their leaders, uh, something that you know never before in human history have that many people chosen their leaders, uh, you know, with that sense of of, of personal agency at one time. Um, is there a silver lining uh, that either of you might 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 seek to conclude on, or at least an opportunity for us to capitalise on, Sophia? I, I think for as much as we need to be really, really frank in our assessment of all of the risks that we're facing here and move pretty aggressively into um, a state of mind where we're really operationalizing our own agency here to, to shape outcomes, um, the world that we could be working towards in working much, much more closely with our allies and, you know, just being much more active and kind of muscular in our defense of liberalism and democracy after a period of, let's be frank, complacency around some of Mm. these things, I think is actually a really exciting prospect and it's totally within our grasp. AUKUS is a perfect example of this. For me, it is the organizing principle is a prism through which we, you know, as the the vanguard of a new way of working between allies, where we're breaking down all those barriers, we're creating a domestic marketplace, we're really, you know, seeing each other as part of, you know, in it together. Mm. And if we can actually operationalize that, extend that to our other, you know, really important um, alliances, get serious about strategic competition and and this resilience piece, bring our citizens on board for this journey and help them to understand their role in in, in this piece of work as well. You know, I think we're, we're going to be a lot stronger than we are now and we're not going to feel as vulnerable as we do in this moment. So it's all within us. Gideon, what do you think? Well, I just think to, to, to return to the point you were making about voting and the numbers of people voting you know, I started by pointing out that it's a slightly more complex picture. On the other hand, the fact that everybody sees elections, even Putin actually uh, wants to hold an election, even if he does tend to either kill or imprison his opponents. And we didn't, uh, we didn't get to the the timing of the um, the, the killing of Navalny. But no, that, that obviously has a bearing. Yeah, sure, but I think that um, it shows that. Democracy still has a legitimacy that the very few people are unwilling are willing to um, jettison. You know, the Chinese are probably the only large power uh, who will say no. It's not for us. Everybody else say, wants to have, be able to say we have the backing of the people. We had a free and fair election, uh, and and to that extent, uh, the West sort of still owns that franchise, if you like of uh, saying, well, you know, our system, uh, electoral democracy is becoming the global system and is the system that people aspire to. In a way, it's why so much hangs on on the US. Um, in another way, it's not just will, will they back up NATO, it's also their role as a, as a, as a moral power, you know, that uh, for all the, the things you could say about America, it had contested elections, it has a free press, um, and that was a real source of um, 
and continues to be a real source of power. But uh, that's why it's really important that that continues for all of us. So look, Gideon Rachman, Sophia Gaston, it's been a, uh, I think, a challenging uh, but also fascinating journey around this disrupted world in 2024. Thank you for joining us at the National Security Podcast. Uh, and we look forward to engaging with you again as as, as we work uh, for the the interests, the values, uh, the identity of uh, of our multicultural democracies. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Rory. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.